Welcome to Spirit of the Hall, our Teddy Hall podcast series brought to you for Orlarians by Orlarians. My name is Ollie Belcher, and I am the immediate past president of the St. Edmund Hall Alumni Association. I am delighted to bring you conversations with some of Teddy Hall's most fascinating alumni, fellows, students, and staff. Our first episode of Series 4 will be with Professor Michael Mingos, Teddy Hall's principal from 1999 to 2009. Whereas Mike has spent most of his life in the UK, he arrived here in 1950 when he was just six. He tells us of his fascinating family background and history and what brought him to the UK. Well, it'll come as a surprise to most people that I'm not British, I wasn't born British. I came to England uh, when I was about six. So you can see that there's a tremendous mix of nationalities in my forebearers. Mike modestly tells us how he got rejected outright from four of the universities he applied to, but scraped into the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology and worked jolly hard to make sure he wasn't thrown out. I was terrified. I'd only just scraped the requirements and it terrified me sufficiently that I worked like mad in that first year. And I was surprised that uh, I came top of the year. Mike reflects on his time as principal of Teddy Hall and along with all the major building works and improvements he oversaw, he talks about the importance of erecting this St Edmund statue which gives the college our identity. I decided that maybe if we put a statue of St Edmund, they could look at that, of course, but also we could then put a plaque saying that this is St Edmund and that this is the St Edmund Hall. Mike, thank you very much for giving up your time today. It's a great privilege to speak to you. Well, Professor Mingos, or Mike, welcome to Spirit (laughs) of the Hall. And thank you very much for joining me today to kick off Series 4. Pleasure. So, Mike, you were Teddy Hall's principal between 1999 and 2009, and indeed my principal. You and Mrs Mingos were familiar and present figures around the college at college sporting finals in the Boathouse in Summer 8s. And I also have memories of principals' collections with you. So we'll discuss your time at the Hall in more detail later. But what I'd like to do is start by asking you about your childhood and the formative events which eventually resulted in you being elected as principal at Teddy Hall. Which part of the country did you hail from and what memories do you have of your early days? Well, um, it'll come as a surprise to most people that I'm not British. I wasn't born British. I came to England uh, when I was about six and uh, we settled in Folkestone as it happens. Well, sort of what, what brought you to England when you were six and where did you come from when you landed up in Folkestone? Well, when one thinks about uh, the empire and uh, people from uh, the major European countries, French, English, Portuguese and so on, sending their people to the empire to administer it, uh, uh, provide soldiers, doctors and so on. Well, my family was, in a sense, mixed up in that, but they weren't really one of those that went out to the empire and came back and continued their lives. They actually stayed within the empire and intermarried and so on. And so if I look at my uh, grandparents, some of them were French origin, Desmier, their name, that they married into a family called Vaos, which was Greek, Now, Greece was originally part of the Turkish Empire, but as the Turkish Empire began to crumble, 
then they tended to migrate uh, into parts of the Turkish Empire. And so my particular family ended up on that side, migrating to the Middle East, originally to Beirut, and then Basra and Baghdad. And so they're of Greek origin, but with French bits, and also some of them were born in uh, Iraq or the Middle East, and so that was an extra complication. On my mother's side, it's slightly less complicated. My grandfather was from Liverpool originally and volunteered uh, to go and fight in the Boer War in South Africa. And at the end of the Boer War, uh, they were given the choice. You could either go back to Liverpool or we have some jobs going in the Indian police force Uh, would that be an alternative? So he decided not to go back to uh, Liverpool and uh, went uh, and joined the police force in India. Obviously did quite well there and moved up the ranks and was promoted. He married, but his first wife died and there was one son from that. And then he met my grandmother and she was a, a Rosario and her family had some English blood in her, but was also from Goa in India. Consequently, that's where the Rosario name comes. And so that adds an extra mix into it all. They married and they had two girls, and he rose to be high up in the police in Pune in India, Pune as it is now. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 50. They were just planning Because if you worked out in the empire, you tended to retire at an early age uh, because of the possibility of diseases and so on. And he died just a few months before he retired. And so my grandmother was left with these two girls in Pune. And her original plan uh, was to follow the one that he'd made and come to England with her two daughters. But since she had family in Iraq, uh, she thought, well, She'll go and visit them because you may never see them again. And uh, they would, after the visit, make their way to England and make a life there. Well, she was persuaded when she was in Iraq uh, with her two daughters to stay there. And so she stayed. And so my mother was educated in um, Baghdad. I went to a convent school there, taught mainly in French rather than English. And um, so uh, they made a life there. So you can see that there's a tremendous mix of nationalities in my forebearers. And so how did I come to England? Well, my mother married at a very young age. She married Vaso Mingos, whose origins uh, were in the island of Rhodes, but uh, he was born in Baghdad. And his father uh, was a civil engineer, and he built some of the bridges in uh, Baghdad. They met and uh, my mother married at the age of 16 and he was about 26, 27 at that age. And um, that was just before the Second World War. When the war came, uh, there was um, obviously a nationalist movement within Iraq which wanted complete independence from uh, the colonial power. But my father still spoke Greek and so on and he uh, had been educated in France as well, and Alexandria was his primary education. He was persuaded uh, by the British to help them as a partisan in Greece, and won't go into 
the details of it, but it, after being trained in Alexandria, he was landed in Greece, uh, but it wasn't a very successful operation, and he was very lucky to come out of it uh, alive. Got back to Alexandria and said, well, what do, what's my next job, Gov, so to speak? And uh, they said, well, I'm afraid you're no good to us anymore because the Germans have many faults, but they have very good administrative systems and they know all about you now. And so I'm afraid we can't use you anymore. And so he came back to Iraq where my sister, who'd been born in 1940, was, and my mother was still there. I don't think he was too popular in Iraq because they moved to Tehran after I was born. I was born in Basra. We lived in Tehran from about 1945. And I'm afraid um, the marriage didn't survive these war experiences for one reason or another. And he decided that if the war had finished now, that his future lay in Greece. And so we were stranded in Tehran, uh, my mother and the two children, my sister and myself. And originally she started working uh, for the oil companies there. But uh, eventually, clearly, there was no money coming from him. And so uh, we went back to Iraq and lived with my aunt. And during that time, I was by then about uh, four or so, she had to find employment. And so she used to commute from Basra across the Shatal Arab uh, to a place called Koran Shah in Iran uh, and worked in the consulate uh, there. And she would come back every couple of weekends or so. And I was basically brought up by my aunt and uh, grandmother. It's absolutely fascinating what you've what you've told me. And as you said, the all the different um, heritages of your family. But I'm I'm just interested now on what made you come from Iran to to the UK. Well, I talked about the nationalism and so on, and eventually, of course, that did break out. But my mother could sense it happening. The oil fields in um, Iran were nationalized at one stage. And uh, and so that uh, it was clearly, maybe it wasn't a total future. And strangely enough, she had come across uh, all these expats working for the oil company. And she thought that the accountants seemed to do rather well. And so she thought, maybe if I, she brought us to England, uh, maybe I'd become an accountant uh, and uh, uh, have a, a good life in England. And so I used to tease her when I was much older. And I said, I must be a great disappointment to you because you brought me to England to be an accountant. And I'm afraid I, I haven't done that. Uh, but, uh, I've trained a lot of accountants because a lot of physicists and chemists ended up, especially when the recessions came, uh, going into accountancy. And so she decided and managed to persuade my grandmother that we would all come to England and make a future there. There were complications because there was an Act of Parliament in 1870, uh, which said that once a woman married, then she had to take up the nationality of her husband. Now, that caused great problems for women who'd married Germans in the First World War and so on. And it wasn't repealed uh, till 1948. And so she was and had working in the consulate at Koram Shah 
uh, she knew the inside story on these things. So she was able to establish she was British and get us on our pass. In those days, children didn't have their own passports. So we were on her passport. But on our passport, it was stated my sister Alexandra, her name was, and myself were aliens and that uh, they were not British nationals, that they were being put on the passport for that basis. My grandmother was right because she'd married an Englishman and so she had a British passport too. In those days, it was very expensive to travel by air. And so we managed, uh, Basra was a big port, and we managed to get places on a cargo ship. And it was a cargo ship going from Basra, stopping at all sorts of ports and ending up in Cork in Ireland. And so we were boarded uh, the ship. We were the only passengers on it. The rest were the crew. And for a young boy of five at the time, that was wonderful for me. The whole journey took 30 days because it was just, you know, it wasn't a a posh liner. It was just a cargo ship because we were the only children. We'd have our meals uh, with the officers and I was allowed to go into the engine room and the wireless room and do all sorts of things. So long as I didn't run around on the deck, so to speak, uh, we were given quite a lot of freedom and it was great fun. Because we already were filled with cargo, originally when I was uh, investigating this, I thought I couldn't think what on earth the cargo would be. And I assumed it was dates because in our time, there were wonderful date palms and plantations. And it was a major export of, of Iraq. But actually, it turned out to be rye, a cereal for uh, the drinking industry in uh, Ireland. Anyway, this ship, we set off and we stopped at places like Aden. And we wouldn't actually uh, dock in the port. We'd get a little boat and go and spend the day in these uh, ports. So Aden was the first one. Then we went through the Suez Canal, which was very exciting. Port Said was the next one. And we, we again had our little day trips. And then it was Malta, Gibraltar, and eventually to Cork, where we disembarked. And the whole journey, as I said, uh, took uh, 30 days uh, uh, from uh, start to finish. My grandmother was very religious. So the first thing we did was have to go to the cathedral in Cork and uh, thank God for allowing us to have had such a, a safe journey. So it's rather different uh, to the boat journey that appears in the papers uh, every day at the moment. It was, uh, for me, a very enjoyable, comfortable existence. And um, we um, weren't questions at all. We weren't put into hotels. Uh, we, we just were, except to the the only thing that obviously I was an alien, my sister was an alien, but so long as we reported to the police station when we got to England, that was fine. My mother had a lot of um, get up and go, but she wasn't the greatest organiser. And so we then got on a train and then went from uh, Dunleary to Fishguard and then another train and ending up in Paddington eventually. And she thought she'd made arrangements for somewhere to stay, but um, she hadn't uh, because she hadn't taken into account the 30 days the journey was. And of course, in those days, there were no mobile phones or any of that sort of thing. 
And so we arrived in Paddington late in the day, having made this long journey, and we had nowhere to stay. And so she heard, had heard about YWCAs. So we spent our first night in England in the YWCA, but they made it absolutely clear that um, I wasn't a, a W, I was an M, a man, even though I was only six years old, and that it would only be for one night. And so uh, uh, we then had to uh, find a hotel, and that's what we did in uh, Acton. Amazing. Well, I have, so, I have so many questions for you, but unfortunately with the podcast length, I can't ask them all. So I'm just working it out. You must have arrived in London around 1950. Yeah. Can you remember your impressions of post-war London when you arrived with your mother and grandmother at six years old? Well, in some ways, it was exciting uh, because it was a capital city. But it was, remember, only six years after uh, the war. And so really, England had almost bankrupted itself during the war. And so the amount of money that could be used to refurbished buildings that, you know, A, it was because of the smog for the previous hundred years or so. It wasn't a white shining city. A lot of the buildings were damaged. There was uh, a lot of bomb sites around. And June time we arrived, uh, it was raining. And of course, other things that were important to us, rationing was still in place. Uh, and all those sorts of restrictions. It it certainly uh, wasn't a city paved in gold. And so uh, I sometimes think my mother must have thought, you know, crikey, what have I done? (laughs) So, Mike, you were in, um, your mother moved to to Acton. And then what happened? Did you go to school there? Well, we had very little, few family uh, here, but we did have my grandmother's sister, my mother's aunt. She'd married someone. uh, There was a big RAF base in Iraq, and she married uh, someone from there and uh, came to England actually before the war. He was only a flight sergeant at that stage, uh, but he was a whiz engineer, knew everything. They used to have, uh, although it was an Air Force base, Rolls-Royce armoured cars, which he was responsible for. And the war came, and of course, he rose very quickly as someone who actually knew about engines and things and uh, became a wing commander. And he was sent to America to um, agree and inspect the sort of goods that we were getting for the war from America. And they stayed there and then came back to England. Uh, the marriage was teetering at that stage, but he'd been based at Hawkins, which was near Folkestone. It was uh, World War Two. It was the nearest airbase to France when the Germans uh, were there. And um, so although the marriage wasn't strong, uh, she lived in Folkestone. And she came to visit us and said, this is a wonderful place, Folkestone, and uh, you um, uh, should come and make your home there. And so on her instigation and no other advice, (laughs) we didn't know who to turn to, really. We ended up in Folkestone in a two-bedroom flat. Wow. Uh, so, so Mike, at the beginning, you said that people may think you're an Englishman, but you aren't, and you've explained very clearly why. Where do you now consider you're from? <laughs> well, I have spent most, you know, I have lived abroad uh, at times, uh, but I've spent most of my uh, time in England. Uh, 
as I say, most people wouldn't recognize me looking at me or seeing the way I speak and so on. So I've adopted all the English characteristics, I think, and I enjoy the English sense of humor and all that. And as I, when I eventually became naturalized and British, it said on my naturalization papers, previous nationality, there's a section there. Mine says uncertain, and you can see why it's uncertain. You know, they just <laughs> gave up on me, so to speak. So the irony is that um, when I was first an academic and was not paid very much, we did a, uh, the family, we had two young children at that stage, uh, we were asked to appear as a typical English family in an advertisement that was going to be launched in Japan to sell wool carpets, English wool carpets. And so there are pictures of us as the typical English family in a typical rented English home. It was actually, you know, one of these stately home type places. And so I looked sufficiently English, uh, I suppose, to pass uh, for an advertising campaign. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Mike, you mentioned when you first became an academic, can you tell us how you actually got into academia and what inspired your love of chemistry? As I say, my mother would have much preferred me to become an accountant. Uh, but of my generation, you made it, I, I managed to scrape into grammar school uh, on the basis of an interview. Only two of us that went from my primary school to grammar school. And I would say that my time at school, I wasn't known as one of the academic members of the thing. I was surprisingly, given my size and so on, better known for my sporting activities and being a bit cheeky and so on. And so at 14, you had to make a decision at that time, whether you're going to follow O-levels, GCSEs as they are now, in the arts and sci or sciences. And uh, so I opted for the sciences because um, I was quite good at maths and so on. And then, of course, I passed those, then went into the sixth form and uh, studied maths, physics and chemistry like everyone else. Uh, maths, when I got into the sixth form, was a lot harder than I imagined it would be. So that was out as a career. Physics had a bit too much maths in it for my liking. And so chemistry was going to be. And I was very fortunate that to have a very nice and charismatic chemistry teacher who allowed us access to the chemistry labs in the sixth form, uh, even uh, when they weren't official chemistry periods. These days, health and safety would completely ban anything like that. But at that time, it showed me that it was a creative activity. You could actually make something new, you know, by, by mixing chemicals together. And there were colours and smells and all that sort of thing. And so... Really, I ended up uh, as a chemist. I then, my parents moved uh, when I was in the sixth form. We moved to Blackpool at that stage. That was disrupting in a way, uh, going into, moving halfway through the sixth form. But it also gave me an opportunity to slightly rediscover myself and uh, become slightly more interested in books and academic matters and so on and so forth. And so that was a, a very important uh, stage too. But as I say, I, although I was always in the top stream at school, 
I never received a prize, a prize giving day or anything like that. You know, I, I would do the minimum uh, for work that I could get away with, really. In those days, too, you didn't have an UCA or UCAS scheme for getting into university. You had to apply to each individual university. And I applied to about five, I think. Four of them rejected me outright, but I, I got an interview at the Faculty of Technology in Manchester, what was to become UMIST eventually, independently, but at that time was part of the University of Manchester. And there was a bizarre thing that if you did well in the interview and they liked you, and the marks in those days, you didn't have grades for A-levels, the pass mark was 40. So if they liked you, they would offer you a place of two A-levels, or no, three A-levels at the grade of 40%. And if they didn't like you, didn't think much of you, uh, they asked you to get 360s. Right. They asked me to get 360s. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, they didn't, at least they didn't reject you outright like the other four. Then <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I did my A-levels, and I remember getting the results. And they were 65, 55, 50. So I went to my mother. I said, sorry, I, I, I don't think I've got in. But at the same time, there was an envelope giving me all the instructions for when I arrived. And so they'd um, lowered the mark for me. And so I just scraped in. And so at that stage, I was terrified. You know, obviously, I'd only just scraped the you know, requirements. And uh, it terrified me sufficiently that I worked like mad in that first year. And um, I was surprised that uh, uh, I came top of the year. Uh, you know, I was expecting to be thrown out. Oh, that's the other thing I have to say. The university in those days, uh, we started off with 120. And after the first year, uh, something like 30 or 40 uh, were thrown out. And uh, after the second year, a further number were thrown out. And then we were declassified, in a sense, into honours and ordinary students. So eventually, you could get a first 2122 third honours degree and similar classifications for ordinary degrees. And so uh, uh, it was uh, very different to the very few people, mm. really. Well, well done, Manchester, for... For spotting potential is what I say, <laughs> and 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 for you for actually um going from doing the bare minimum to working very hard. So Mike, uh, you know you, you obviously went through university there. How did you end up as principal of Teddy Hall in 1999? I did my doctorate at Sussex University and then went to America on a Fulbright fellowship uh, for two years at Northwestern University. Then. I came back to England and my first academic job was at Queen Mary College in the University of London in 1971. And um, it was a bad time actually for being uh, an academic uh, because although we had 20 faculty members there, we were only taking 18 students a year. So I thought I was the last in. I might very well be the first out. <laughs> and so... Um, I, um, you know, didn't see too much of a career there at that time. But after five years of uh, doing um, my own work primarily, I applied for a job at Keeble and Oxford University. I was appointed a fellow at Keeble as the chemistry, inorganic chemistry tutor. And that I did for 
15 years or so. And then I moved to Imperial College in London uh, as uh, a professor of chemistry there. And uh, that was in 1992, and we stayed there till 1999. And through that career, I'd obviously done quite a lot of chemistry, but also uh, increasingly I was asked to do various sorts of administrative sort of jobs and things at that time. So I was uh, Dean of the Royal College of Science, for example, uh, at Imperial College. Before leaving Oxford, I'd been uh, the uh, tutor for graduates at Keeble College and also uh, one of the proctorial sort of positions. I was the assessor at the university uh, for a year. So I did don't know how, I can't remember exactly, but I was somehow, it was suggested that maybe I start uh, thinking about uh, some of these positions of head of college. And St. Edmund Hall came up. It was in the newspaper because the previous principal had only been there for um, two years and it hadn't worked out. It didn't turn out to be as disastrous as what happened at Christchurch more recently. But there was uh, considerable unrest. For example, there were student sit-ins because the previous principal was very popular uh, with the undergraduates and he was seen to be around and so on and slightly eccentric. But, uh, you know, just this, they, they liked him. But, of course, things had gone wrong on the academic side. The uh, alumni were very concerned of what had happened and uh, there was an advisory board that suggested that in order to get things right this time round, why didn't we, the college use headhunters? And the incentive was uh, that they would pay for it. Mm. And so it became a very tortuous uh, sort of interview process because uh, not only was I interviewed by the headhunters, uh, but also by the group of alumni who provided the headhunters. Then at the college levels, I met first with a small group of fellows. Then I had an interview with the JCR and SCR. And then the final interview in front of the whole fellowship. And I remember starting off my introduction to why they should appoint me and said that um, they'd drawn a bad straw that particular evening because Monica Lewinsky was the guest at All Souls and they had me instead. You remember, <laughs> you remember who Monica Absolutely, Bill Clinton, yes. <laughs> that was at uh, the beginning of the interview. And they had a strange procedure where they would interview you and then um, they would stop it. And I was taken to Chris Wells's room as a holding room. And they would have a short meeting to discuss uh, what they should have asked and hadn't asked, so to speak. And then I was brought back in. So that was uh, the whole interview. And eventually, when I was told I was on the very, very short list, I was asked to have a medical. And so I had to go off and uh, have a medical. I received that uh, when I was uh, in South Africa on other business, actually. But anyway, I came back and uh, had the medical. I did use to joke with them that... Uh, uh, that was a strange thing uh, to do because although you would establish uh, whether I was likely to have a heart attack in the next few <laughs> years or something, there was no psychological uh, testings, whatever. 
And so they were in danger of getting a, a very healthy psychopath. <laughs> so anyway, that's um, how I ended up. The one, there were sort of some problems uh, with that appointment because the advisory board that gave money for the appointment interviews and so on weren't very happy with me and they didn't want me. I won't go into the whole story, but uh, I had good support within the uh, college, I think. I mean, it seems that it was a, was a very good appointment because I think, in from what I understand, in your time as principal over that decade, you did succeed in bringing stability to the college. I think you were also responsible for launching and directing a very successful fundraising campaign, which resulted in several buildings. Can you, can yeah. you tell me about some of these? In a sense, it was obvious that uh, St Edmund Hall was one of the poorer colleges in Oxford, and it also suffered disadvantage it, in aesthetic terms. It's not a disadvantage. It's in a wonderful location, a wonderful site. Uh, and, you know, if you were uh, to try and uh, picture a college for an outside audience, it has those in a very beautiful and uh, uh, compact way. But the disadvantage of that, of course, is that you don't have any room to expand. And being a poor college, we didn't own other land within Oxford uh, where we could expand, except for, of course, Norham Gardens, uh, uh, quite a, a far distance. But all the inner city colleges, except the very rich ones, suffer from, so that that's why the sizes of colleges on more on the periphery, uh, St. Cat's, St. Hughes, Keeble to some extent, have been ex- able to expand more readily than uh, Oxford. But that needs money, and uh, there's always competition between the colleges of providing more facilities to, to get the best students and so on. So there had been previous campaigns within the college, but none had reached their target. And so I did give a lot of time and effort to trying to launch a successful uh, uh, campaign, and Touchwood we did. And um, uh, based on that, uh, of course, we were able then to buy the, originally it was going to be St Hilda's was going to, or no, yes, I think it was St Hilda's, was going to build uh, something there. Uh, But uh, we took over uh, the plans and built the Dawson Street building, uh, at the bottom of the uh, Cowley Road. Is that the William R. Miller building? William R. Miller and uh, Bill Miller were, has been a wonderful donor to the college and uh, made a very substantial contribution that allowed us to do that. Uh, there were major sort of things within the hall that anyone would visit. For example, when you first came into the hall, when I first visited, there was a cubby hole. It might have been there when you were first there, which was for the porters, and it wasn't a very efficient or... uh, And so we completely refurbished the entrance of the college. Uh, That involved because the wine, the college wine cellars were right underneath uh, that part of the building. And so they had to be transferred. That's 40,000 bottles of wine to a safe location whilst that building worked. Was, went on and then they came back again and that was uh, completed and it produced some more additional office space in that area. 
but the major building work that on the site that we did was to introduce the new lecture hall, the Doctoro. Jarvis Doctoro was again a magnificent donor uh, that uh, we um, managed to persuade to help us get that new lecture hall and additional offices and student rooms above the Wolfson Hall. And also refurbishments in the gardens, the introduction of the um, St. Edmund statue was uh, one of the projects. I noticed, and this is true of all Oxford colleges, is that as um, somebody who doesn't know, you walk past them and they don't tell you which college they are very often. And this was especially bad on the basis that if you were the right sort of person, you'd know which college they were anyway. So, um, and that, that disturbed me that uh, because we have such a small fingerprint on Queen's Lane, it's very easy to walk past St. Edmund Hall and not even know it was there. Mm. It's such a pretty place. Why not say that you're St. Edmund Hall? But that couldn't be done because of the reasons I explained. But I also uh, noticed that um, visitors often would stop after going past the entrance and look through the iron gate, you know, thinking that uh, it was an Alice in Wonderland world or something there. They couldn't help but sit and stand and look. So I decided that maybe if we put a statue of Sir Edmund, they could look at that, of course, but also we could then put a plaque saying that this is St. Edmund and that this is the St. Edmund Hall. And so um, that was the reasoning behind getting that uh, statue uh, put there, is to give a a clearer identity of the college. Mm. Once it was sort of, um, it wasn't popular with all the fellows. Uh, A lot of the fellows uh, thought he was far too skinny. They uh, preferred a friar tuck sort of appearance uh, for and um, there was one stage where they were thinking of uh, putting it in the new fellow's garden or that part of the college. But that would have destroyed the whole purpose of it, yes. <laughs> uh, my stratagem to uh, get the college identified. So I had to fight quite hard uh, for it to be instated there. And like all these things, there are unintended consequences. Uh, I just wanted it to to identify St. Edmund. But Rodney Mundy was uh, insistent that it also have a wider sort of uh, plaque stand on it that people could sit beside him. And that we did notice, Stacey and I, that very often undergraduates would sit beside St. Edmunds and some would even be talking to him. (laughs) (laughs) He had a, a psychological benefit uh, as well as uh, uh, of, uh, uh, a sort of aesthetic uh, uh, and nomenclature. Uh, well, it's amazing all the all the buildings and improvements you made, as well as as well as enabling the identity of St Edmund Hall. But Mike, you also did more than that for the college because you didn't you introduce opportunities for undergraduates through things like the Bridge to Business program and the Masterclass scheme, and also yeah. that new prize to celebrate students who had gained both a first and a sporting blue. Guilty, Your Honour. Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, <laughs> I think that it was a strong feeling for me is that I was tremendously impressed uh, by the students uh, uh, at the hall because they were uh, much cleverer than me and also at that age 
had these amazing talents that besides you know having these superb a-level grades and so on uh that um you know someone that i'd congratulated in collections for having done so well academically i'd see him on on the rugby field or playing for the first 15 or on the river and so some of the money that we were raising i thought should go or the masterclass scheme where if you had a talent there was money there and it could be a sporting talent a musical talent a dramatic talent whatever it was to enable you to get either tuition or experience to move up a few gears and uh, be able to you know the, the, you know if you've already got talent you also should need to nurture it uh, to become world class or very distinguished in that area and so the master class uh, was uh, aimed towards that sort of intention and uh, it's nice to see that that is still uh, happening uh, as far as the bridge to business that was uh, really put together again thinking about having these students with these talents but also giving them the experience of working within a company and that's why it was called the bridge to business program so in its initial form uh, they would have two weeks within the college of lectures from someone from the side business school about the basic sort of economics uh, of business and uh, funding and management and those sorts of things and then we and Stacy helped me with this and also other people in the development office would arrange a internship with a company often they were with alumni and I'm very grateful for their cooperation uh, with this which would give them work during the summer holiday of the second year in order to gain experience of industry and we also used to get someone in from Reuters who used to give them guidance about how to uh, write a, a good CV and do in interviews mm. and so it it's exactly what is said on the tin i hope a bridge between being a very able undergraduate into perhaps going through the interview process and succeeding eventually in getting a job uh, within industry absolutely and i hope i hope students today feel that through olarian connect they can actually reach out to alumni for similar experiences yeah so so mike in your 10 years as principal of teddy hall what did you enjoy most about the role well i, I without a doubt the students it, it was always in a sense as i say i was impressed uh, by them and all that they had achieved in sporting and academic things and most of them were very nice too <laughs> yeah so you know occasionally there would be problems arising from uh, high spirits and so on and so that uh, for example there was somebody that decided to play his bagpipes disturbing everyone through the middle of the night after a drunken sort of a night out i think i remember that um one incident <laughs> <laughs> and so i got my own back on him by getting him to pipe us in for the burns night dinner <laughs> he's a, he remains a very good friend of mine so <laughs> 
Uh, so I think that was uh, really uh, the uh, outstanding, you know, who was uh, there. And, of course, I enjoyed, you know, at first it was a bit strange living in the hall. It, it is right in the college. But it um, was an opportunity to see, because I no longer taught the students, and I thought it was important uh, to be seen to be there if there were people with problems that wanted to come and see me or problems arose, that people felt I was on site and approachable. And so one of the things Stacy and I did was uh, on some, not every Sunday morning, but join the students for brunch on a Sunday morning. I think sometimes they were the, I was the last person they wanted to see. They'd been to a terrible party the night before, that drunk too much. The last thing you want is sit next to the principal trying to make conversation <laughs> with him. But nonetheless, it was a way of talking to them in a less formal manner and in a more relaxed, I hope, manner. And again, they would see that I was around and there mm. if they needed to consult me about something or just express a view about the college uh, that I should know about. So mm. that, uh, well, you, you, you were very much around, which I know we all really appreciated at the time. So, so Mike, what did you do after Teddy Hall and do you ever miss it now? Uh, well, as you can see from my uh, life, um, I've always moved on, you know, that uh, it started off in two different countries, came to England and so on. And so I've enjoyed my retirement tremendously, but I've gone on to do other things. In the first year after I left, I didn't go into college at all for that first year because I thought it was perhaps, you know, unfair to be around when my successor was getting his feet under the table and getting to know people. The last thing you want to see is the previous principal around talking to his friends and laughing and so on. And so for the first year, but since then, I do go in uh, regularly. Fortunately, I'm an honorary fellow at the hall and also at Keeble. And so I try and alternate. I go to a seminar in the department on the Tuesday. And so I have lunch in one college, one Tuesday, and then the second college, the other Tuesday. As I say to people, it's the way I can use the same jokes twice. Uh, <laughs> And I go to some of the social events and so on. So it, it's always nice. You know, it's sad, of course, that uh, some of the people in my department and also in the colleges have died, especially during COVID time. And I do seem to spend a lot of my time at the moment going to memorial services that uh, have uh, been put off because of uh, COVID and are just being held now. But in many senses, um, we made a new life uh, within the village and uh, I've done things in the village. I've joined the village committee and organised their lecture programme and also started tours of scientific Oxford, taking them around uh, Oxford, not on a literary tour or a, that sort of tour, that a Morse tour or endeavour, but pointing out where important scientific events occurred within Oxford, whether it's penicillin or, or whatever. I've continued my academic work, but I don't have a chemistry lab at home. Stacy wouldn't allow that. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, most of my contributions are in writing and consulting and visiting. I've 
go to New Hong Kong and Singapore to advise them on various things. And I've done consultancy work in England and abroad. And I produced a whole, I'm looking at them over here, about 20 volumes um, that I've edited and contributed to uh, in my own speciality. So um, I'm keeping busy. Amazing. So never, never a dull moment. You know, I am approaching 80. I shall be 80 next year. And so uh, uh, I'm a bit slower than I was. My memory is not quite as good. Well, it seems pretty sharp to me. <laughs> so, um, so Mike, before you go, can I ask you to leave us with three favourite places of yours? One in Teddy Hall, one in Oxford, and one in the world beyond Oxford. Uh, I do them in the reverse order, if you don't mind. The world, um, we've travelled a lot, Stacey and I, uh, and my job has always allowed me to travel a lot. So my favourite pers- places in the world are Italy, northern Italy, especially Florence, Venice, Rome, but also uh, Japan. I, I think in Japan's a wonderful place uh, uh, to visit. Uh, and so uh, I'd pick those. In Oxford, um, what are my favourite places in Oxford? I don't really have one particular place, but what I do like is walking around Oxford because there's always things that I hadn't noticed before that are interesting. And it's just because it's the place I've lived in most of my life. Uh, and if I were to call anywhere home, it would be Oxford. And, uh, and COVID had many dreadful aspects of it. But one nice thing was seeing Oxford during the day almost empty and uh, walking around Oxford during those days uh, was uh, particularly nice and evocative in the sense of having empty streets without other sort of modern people gave you a fine sense of history and um, brought back many memories for me. Uh, Teddy Hall, my favourite, I think, is would be to sit next to St Edmund and talk to him about what problems I've got left. On that bench that you mentioned. Yeah, on that bench. <laughs> Wonderful. And, and Mike, if you could guarantee one thing about Teddy Hall that would never change, what would it be? Well, as I say, I am a person of change all the time. So I think change is part of life. And so that you see even Teddy Hall's wonderful front quad, which is the prettiest in Oxford, I'm sure. Uh, Even that has changed since I first saw it. There used to be a uh, eccentric leaning tree. We must have been there in your time in the quad, which is gone. There used to be the flagstones with old members, uh, and that's gone. Yeah, nothing really stays. Uh, There's always change, and you hope that it's done in a a way. And so I try and avoid saying too often that something should never change, because change is part of moving on and progressing and so on. So. I think that I'm dodging your answer slightly, but I am a person that thinks change has to occur and accept it. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a different question then to leave on. What change do you think is the best thing about Teddy Hall? As in the constant um, changes to the buildings or to the student body or to the fellowship? What what change do you think are the best? Changes in all those. I think, you know, you, you, you have to 
change the building to accommodate new requirements of the students and so on. You try and maintain those parts of it that are still pretty, but you do have to change the building. Uh, The staff is changing even when I got uh, into trouble, I think, in one of my interviews, because it was so obvious to me that at that time, I think there were only two or three women fellows, and uh, now there are many more. And so that sort of change, to me, was obvious that it had to occur. I, I, I encouraged it. And similarly with the uh, student body, it's changing as a university more from just being an undergraduate university as increasingly becoming a research university, a more international university. There are many more people now in Oxford than when I first came. And, uh, you know, as for the reasons I explained early on, was something of a, a, an outsider. That has changed dramatically because it's an international activity. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you very much indeed for your time today. No, no. I remember being so proud that you were my principal and loved seeing you and, and um, Stacey or Mrs. Mingos in and around college most days. And it's been really wonderful to talk to you today. So thank you. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed hearing from former Principal Mike Mingos, whose fascinating background and family history could be a podcast in itself. I was always grateful for Mike's presence in and around Teddy Hall, as I felt he really knew us and what we were up to. Our next episode is with Cleo Georgiadis, who came up to the hall in 1990 to read psychology and philosophy. Since then, Cleo has done all sorts of jobs in what she describes as a zigzagging career, but she has ended up in the world of hospitality and brought the Greek restaurant Estiatoro Milos to London, which she absolutely loves. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Listening.